I know some of you don't like it when I say this, but before I came here to Scottsdale Bible, I really never liked music like that. I, I really didn't. I, I, I just, I, I heard it done in smaller churches and other settings, and it just didn't quite have the punch. And I thought, you know, I mean, that's like an old song and all that. And, and yet somehow when our choir and our orchestra does it, it just lifts me to God. How about you? They just do an awesome job. Yeah, we're super blessed. So, you know, uh, 500 years ago this year, the Reformation occurred uh, in Europe. The Reformation was when uh, the church got back on track with things like justification by faith alone and the priority of the Word of God and things like that. And since the Reformation, Christians, especially from the Protestant end, have, have gathered uh, for weekly worship. And we've always done two things. And that is that we've worshiped God through singing, through liturgy, through reading the scripture, through being with each other, through giving. We've had a time of worship, and then we turn to his word. And so worship in the word has been the way that Christians, at least for the last half millennium, have done their weekly worship. And so I hope at this point in the service, you are uh, dialed into God, having focused upon him, maybe gotten things out of your head from the week before, and we're now ready to turn to his word. We're going to be wrapping up a series today uh, in, in kind of a special way that I think will be hopefully penetrating to your heart and your mind uh, in, in a way that only God can do. Uh, after the service, or after the sermon, um, we're going to go right into our offering that Neil mentioned earlier. So, you know, Christians, you guys are the most predictable people on planet Earth. And, and as soon as I get done preaching, most of you do what? You leave because you're thinking of Mimi's and what you want for breakfast and things like that. So don't do that today. Uh, don't leave right after I get done preaching. We're going to go into our time of offering, and uh, it's going to be a special time as we wrap up a four-year journey as a church and now anticipate what God is going to do next. So we're going to hear a special word from the chairman of our elders, uh, who we don't hear from often enough, and so uh, it's going to be meaningful to hear from Jeff, and uh, you're going to want to stay for that. And so let's bow right now and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, we're uh, grateful for your word and the truth that you've given us through your word. And I pray that as we turn to it now, that you might speak to our minds and our hearts. And Lord, would you even change us from the inside out? There's some of us, Lord, here today that have come in kind of beat up, uh, maybe struggling a little bit or even a lot in our lives. And we need a word from you. Uh, we need to hear something from you that might lift us out of the muck and mire, as Psalm 40 says, and place us onto dry ground. Would you do that in us today? And God, I pray that as we uh, also prepare our hearts for a time of offering to honor you with what you've done uh, in and through this local church of yours, God, may uh, you be glorified and praised with that as well. So we look to you now in Jesus' name, and the whole church says together, amen. amen. So sometimes, I know it's hard to be hard for you to believe, but sometimes Christians in their walk with God miss the primary point. I'm telling you it's true. Sometimes Christians, well-meaning, well-intentioned, in their walk with God, miss the primary point. Here's a great analogy. About 13 years ago, I was sitting in my house in Cleveland, Ohio, the Cleveland area, and I was pastoring at my former church, and I was just turning 40, and it was almost like overnight, I started to get blurry vision when I would read. And I actually thought I had a brain tumor, so I called my brother-in-law, who was an optometrist, and I said, John, I 
got this problem with my eyes. I, I can't see very well. And he started to laugh. He said, yeah, that's because you're 40. You need glasses. And so uh, next time I was with him uh, down in North Carolina, I went into his office and we did all the check. And sure enough, I needed glasses almost a decade and a half ago. And so over the last decade and a half, I've, I've worn glasses for reading and then also for a little bit of nearsightedness. Now, some of you have pointed out to me that I struggle with style when it comes to my glasses. And you get absolutely no argument from me. I sit there at the optometrist's office and I struggle with wire-rimmed versus black plastic, rounded versus oval versus more square, progressive versus traditional bifocal. I mean, there's so many choices and it's hard to know. Styles keep changing, especially as we get older. And so a few years ago, I decided that I was bored with the two styles that I wear. I wear these black plastic ones, and then some of you have noticed, because you pay way too much attention to what I wear, <laughs> that I have these uh, more, more uh, wire rim glasses, only two pair that I really own. And so a couple years ago, I thought I'd branch out in style, and the reason was is because there were some people that I admire that look good in their glasses. One of my wife's favorite TV shows is Blue Bloods. And she thinks that Tom or Tom Selleck is just a hunk. And so I, I thought, well, he's got these rounded glasses. He looks really good. The guy's like 70 years old. He's looking great. And, and then this guy, uh, this is Dr. Tim Kimmel, who's one of our elders. And, and Tim's got those rounded glasses, and he just looks so good. And, and then this guy, this is uh, Eric Metaxas, who's an author. He looks like a GQ cover, doesn't he? I mean, with the rounded glasses. So I'm seeing all these guys, and I'm thinking, you know, I need to buy some rounded glasses. I think I'd look great with those. And, and I didn't want to pay a lot of money for them because I'm cheap, and so I, I got online. I went to my doctor and I got the prescription, I got all the measurements, and I ordered these glasses online that would make me look like Tom Selleck or Tim Kimmel or Eric Metaxas. And three weeks later, I got the glasses and I put them on and I was so proud. I looked like this with the glasses that I bought. Yeah, these are actually them. And so I put these on. And, I, and, and this is a true story. I went downstairs. I, my office at home is upstairs. I went downstairs, and I looked at Kim. She was watching TV, and I said, what do you think? <laughs> and I'll never forget her response. She's so gentle. She said, honey, two things. She said, one, you do need to wear glasses, and two, those are not it. <laughs> and then she said, and I forbid you to wear them outside of the house. So I, I don't wear these ever. I only wear them now for illustrative purposes, as I'm doing right now. But, but, but what's the point? Uh, the point is, is that I needed glasses. We all know that. But I missed the point by choosing the glasses that I did, didn't I? I, I needed glasses, but I, I missed the whole point of trying to order the wrong glasses. You're saying, well, what are you getting at? I, I think Christians today look kind of goofy in the way that people perceive us when we say that we need God, but we're not clear on exactly and precisely what we need from God and what it is about God that is so central. 
In other words, we're like me with these goofy pair of glasses, is that we say we need glasses, but then we choose, if you will, the wrong glasses. Christians today are very good at saying that we all need God, but some of us are wearing the wrong glasses in the things that we emphasize as the most important things about God. You're saying, what do you mean? You know, one of the things that has amazed me for years as I have read the Bible, I've been a Christian now for over 35 years, is that the Bible asks us to honor and be about and focus on a lot of things. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I'm not going to be hard on the Bible, but when you read the Bible, it tells us that we need to focus on everything from truth to service to obedience to worship to theology to evangelism to social action to prayer to family to widows to orphans to accountability, to encouragement, to politics, to arts, to stewardship, to marketplace ethics. I mean, the list is almost endless of the things that the Bible ties to God and even our Christian life. And here's what happens, is that invariably, Christians will focus on one or just a few of those things, explode those things to the most important thing, because that happens to be their pet passion, and when others bump into them, Christian or not, they get the message that that's what God is most about. And I see it happen all the time in evangelical Christianity here in America. We get myopically focused with the wrong set of glasses on our particular pet peeve, whether it be a certain doctrine or a certain expression of faith or a certain issue. I mean, there's so many things, and we make that the most important thing. And don't get me wrong, it's not that these areas are wrong or unnecessary in, in their own right. Of course they are. They all have their rightful place. Here's the point. None of them, however, are described in the Bible as the primary thing that matters most. If you don't hear anything else today, let this blow your mind. Not truth, not service, not obedience, not worship, not evangelism, not social action, not even prayer are the most important things that God says matters the most. Only one thing is described in the Bible as a superlative, the most important, the greatest thing, and that is the topic before us today, love. In fact, let's just say it plainly and clearly so that we're all on the same page with the Bible. It's your main point today, and this is it. This is it. And that is that the primary thing that matters in life and I've, worded my, I've chosen my words very carefully here, is the receiving and the giving of God's love. Let me repeat that. The primary thing, according to God, that matters most in life is the receiving and the giving of God's love. That's what's primary. And please know, because some of you men especially, as soon as I start talking about love, go, oh gosh, is he going to talk about that again? We're not talking about Hallmark cards here, men. We're not talking about Valentine's Day. We're not talking about romance novel. We're not talking about lifetime specials for women. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a very unique, divinely entrenched, particular kind of love, what the Bible calls agape love, that's the Greek word describing it, agape love, that can only come from God through faith in Jesus Christ and is to both be received from him as such and then given to others around us. 
That's the love that the Bible and God puts the most premium on. Very quickly, just so that we really get this, let me show you scripturally why this is or how this is so. One of the things that you notice when you read the Bible is that it's almost like every page or every other page, the Bible continues to come back to this idea of love being preeminent. Just some rapid-fire scriptures to show this. John 3, 16, one of the most popular passages in all the Bible, third and fourth words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just two words into this is telling us that the reason that the gospel is so powerful, the reason that Jesus came is predicated on the love of God for the world. And it only takes off from here. Look at what Jesus would say at one point in Matthew 22. It says, and he, Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and prophets. All of them depend on these. I like how Galatians 5 verse 6, verse 6 says it. Look at this next scripture. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now watch this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So, so it's trying to be reductionist there. You guys catching this? The Bible's trying to reduce things to its simplest form. And it's saying the only thing that really matters is faith expressing itself through love. And then look at 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. It says the aim of our charge, or as one translation says it, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So let that one blow your mind. It's saying that whenever you and I meet and we teach the word of God, what's the goal of all of that? That somehow you and I are gonna receive and give this agape love of God that is only found in Christ Jesus. And then just a couple more. First Peter chapter one, verses 22 and 23 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, why? For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So why do you obey the truth? What's the end goal of that? Don't miss this gang, so that you can love so that you can receive God's love deeper into your heart and then give it to other people. And just so that we are clear, this is the superlative that I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. The most reductionistic passage in all of Scripture, it says these. And so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. The greatest is love. So what God is saying there is that he put faith, which is so important because without faith, you are not saved. Without faith, you cannot receive what God has for you and has done for you in Jesus. He puts faith and then hope, that eternal hope that we have, that this world is not all there is, but that there's an eternity hidden in Christ that we can spend eternity with him in. He puts faith, hope, and love side by side. And then God says, if I had to choose one, if I had to say that one is more important than all the others, it would be love. It's that important. 
And the logic of all of this is clear. The reason that God overdoses in his call and command to receive his love and give it out to all those around us is because without it, now don't miss this, gang, you are actually spiritually bankrupt. You see, this is where it almost becomes scandalous. God says that you can have ecstatic experiences with him. You can have power unbelievable. You can have all the theological doctrine and knowledge that can fill your very mind. And you can even have faith to trust him. But if you have no love, you're nothing. You're spiritually bankrupt. You're saying, where's that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says what I just said. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, meaning ecstatic experiences with God, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if my theology is so solid and I'm a five-point Calvinist, and I understand all the doctrines of grace, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I'm trusting God with everything in me, but have not love, I am, say this word with me, nothing. nothing. Wow. And then look what it goes on to say. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, if I give a lot of dough to needy causes, and if I become a martyr for the church, but I have not love, I gain nothing. I looked up that word nothing in the Greek this week, and you know what it literally means? <laughs> nothing. Nada. You're spiritually bankrupt without love. Folks, it's not even arguable. I mean, there's some things you might want to send me emails over. Don't send them over this one. I'm telling you, you're talking to a brick wall. It's not arguable. The Bible is crystal clear that the primary thing that matters in life is the receiving and the giving of God's love. From this and from our experience of it, everything else flows. Truth, grace, obedience, service, evangelism, stewardship, justice, worship, even prayer. All the things that you and I do, all the things that we seek after flow from our understanding and our experience of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. It's that important. So what is then agape love? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, in a world and a culture today that describes love as a feeling, something that you fall in and out of, or an action, just do it, or even nice thoughts about someone or something, what is this love that God lavishes on us and Jesus that we are to likewise lavish on each others? What is the nature of this love? This is going to blow your mind, because once again, the Bible is really clear. And here's what the Bible says. And that is that agape love is always defined and described as a relational entity more than anything else. Did you know that? In other words, what the Bible is going to tell us, and we'll see this in black and white in just a second here, is that unless you are upfront, close, and personal with somebody, Unless you're what theologians call incarnational with somebody, walking a little bit in their shoes and understanding their lives, you are incapable to love them the way God wants us to. Because love in the Bible is always described as a relational entity more than anything else. It's not just a feeling. It's not flowery thoughts. It's not even at the end of the day, nice actions. As good as all that is, and as much as our American culture is into that, no, the Bible says love is relational 
And if you're not in relationship with somebody, if you're distant from them, if you're not up front, close, and personal, you can't really love them. You're saying, where's that? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, again, the love chapter. Look at how it will go on to describe love for us. And as I read this for you, because I put all the descriptions in yellow, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself if it is possible to do these things absent other people around you, absent being in relationship with them. You ready for this? It says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, here, here's what hit me as I have read this over the years, and that's that I don't think you can do these things on an island alone without other people. I mean, when it says love is patient and kind, who are you going to be patient and kind with? A tree? I, I mean, that, that, I don't think that's what it's getting at here. I think it's saying that the only reason, the only way I can be patient and kind, the only way I can express love is if I'm willing to engage you or my neighbor or my wife or my children or that lost person at work. That's the only way I can be patient, kind, and not envy or boast and not be arrogant or rude or insist on my own way. Love, please see this. It precludes and understands this idea of relationality. Uh, could it be the fruits of the Spirit are saying the same thing? Galatians 5, many of you know this passage, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then what does it go on to say? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, what blows me away is that out of these nine things, <laughs> most of them require people. I, I mean, I guess you can have joy and peace without people, but patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. See, see, without other people in the equation, those things mean nothing. It could it be that this is what John was getting at in this very famous passage about love? He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. That's for another sermon, but that one should scare the heaven out of us. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Again, for another sermon, but have any of you ever experienced verse 18 here? I have. I have been in the presence of love, both in the presence of God and experiencing his love, and we'll talk about this in a second, and even in the presence of some people that know him, that love me like him, and in that presence, in those those rare God moments that I've had, I have felt the absolute absence of fear. All my insecurity, all my fear, all my worries. I mean, don't you, wouldn't you want that? Just go away. And that's the way it's supposed to work. That love as a relational entity is that power. So what is agape love? It's a relational entity that consistently thinks, feels, and acts towards others in such a way that is always for their benefit. Or as I love how Larry Crabb says it, he has such a way with words. Crabb says, love is putting Christ on display in the way we relate to others. That you look to the life of Jesus, look at how he treated others in his life, and then say, I'm gonna put Jesus on display in the way that I relate to God the Father and other people around me. 
And again, I know some of you are tough nuts. Some of you are going, yeah, 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 I know. But really, Jamie, come on. We always talk about love around here. Is it really that important? It, maybe this will help. This might bait some of you more theological people in our, in our church here. Uh, let me ask you a, a very important question. Have you ever wondered what the Trinity did before they created the heavens and the earth? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's kind of a, obviously a philosophical question, but Genesis 1 uh, give hints to the Trinity that the rest of the Bible fills in, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, all one God. And obviously the Bible is all about God's interaction with his creation, the Trinity's interaction with creation. But if we are temporal people created in the image of God and the Trinity, and they are, is eternal in nature, then the question I would ask you is what did the Trinity do before they created humankind. For all of eternity, what did they do? They play backgammon together? Did they play tiddlywinks? Did they go to movies? I mean, what did they do? And the answer, by the way, to all those is no, because none of those were created. There was no physical creation at that time before the creation of the world. Let me give you some hints here. Jesus helps us with this, and then we'll put it all together. John 5, 20, in talking about the Trinity relationship, Jesus says, for the Father, oops, loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Next verse here, John uh, 10, 15, and 30. Just as the Father knows me, Jesus is speaking, and I know the Father, I and the Father are one. And then look at these words of Jesus here. John 17, 21. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then one more, and we'll put this together here. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory in the presence. Are you starting to see? Could it be that what the Trinity did for all eternity before the creation of the world is to love and relate to each other as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some of you, I know you think, man, be honest with you, you're thinking, well, that sounds boring. And you know what God would say to that? That's your problem. You don't see relationship as meaningful. You don't see it as the core to what it means to be a human being made in the image of God that God could find internal satisfaction for all of eternity simply by being in relationship with himself. See, when I grab onto that, I go, whoa, my priorities are messed up because I spend all of my day trying to get away from people. I spend all of my time trying to get my own time and my own space and all of that, and people drive me batty at times. And God says, you don't get it, Jamie. I created you for love. I created you for relationship. And I've existed for all of eternity in mutual relationship with myself. Uh, look at how Eugene Peterson would say this. I, I love this. Peter says, Peterson says, we don't understand the Trinity by working with numbers, puzzling how one equals three or three equals one. He says, Trinity has nothing to do with arithmetic. Trinity is the church's way of learning to think and respond relationally to God as he reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, God is tri-ply-personal, emphatically personal, unrelentingly personal. Growing up in the practice of love must also be unrelentingly and emphatically personal. Keller says it similarly, Tim Keller, if you like him, 
in, in talking about the distinction between us and God, he says the inner life of the triune God, however, is utterly different than us. He says the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. Are you starting to salivate after this yet, church? I mean, this is what God has placed his premium on. The giving and receiving of his agape love found in Jesus. And that's what matters most. That's what is primary. And it's love cast in relational garb that God is most interested in. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, Jamie, I get it. You've said it often, love matters most. His love is always upfront, close, and personal. But, but, but how do I actually get there? How do I tap into this love that God offers? How do I experience it? And it's a good question, actually a real good question. And quite frankly, one that we pursue all the time here at our church. Think about all the things that I tell you to do around here. Not me, but that the Bible affirms to us. Uh, we tell you to talk to God in prayer. You guys ever heard us tell you to do that? Talk to God in prayer. But we tell you to listen to God through his word as you regularly read it and absorb it. We tell you to listen to God in that still small voice when you're driving down the 101 and he's speaking something to your spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in you as a believer. But we tell you to serve others and in that way experience uh, the love of God. And we even tell you to experience his love through fellowship with each other speaking truth to each other, encouraging one another, finally getting honest with each other, what we call authentic community. See, these are all ways that the Bible tells us that over time, as we utilize what the theologians call these means of grace, that we can experience the love of God. That you could have what John Ortberg calls rainbow days, or what my mentor Lud Goltz used to call God sightings or what Bill Hybels calls defining moments. I don't care what you call them, they're all the same thing. It's when God breaks through into our world and for just a moment, or maybe even for longer, you experience just a taste of his love. See, this is what the scriptures mean when it says taste and see that the Lord is good. And some of you say, how do I do that? Well, talk to him. You're saying, well, I do. Talk to him some more. And then I say, read the word. Somebody's saying, I do. Read the word some more. Uh, fellowship with other Christians some more. Serve some more. These are all the means of grace that we utilize. But, but here's the deal with those things. Now, now try to latch on to this because we're going to wrap up with this. I got to tell you, my fear is not in the question you ask. My fear is not necessarily in how you and I are going to experience God's love because we're always going to be working on that one. You hang around Scottsdale Bible Church long enough. As long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to keep bringing you this message over and over again. I had a buddy visit from my last church a few months ago, and I was speaking on grace, which is a corollary of God's love. And he said, man, you're like a one-string banjo. You know that? And I said, thank you. I, I think I am. Because the other strings, I allow you guys to pluck, and, and, and you look like this when you do. And uh, I don't. I I string, I have the one string that I know matters more than anything else, and that is the rabid pursuit of his love. And we're always going to do that. No, here's my fear for you and I. My fear is that it's so easy today to take our eye off the ball and to focus on things that are good things. C.S. Lewis called them wonderful second-place things. They're just not first-place things. And you and I explode those into the most important things 
And all the while, we're wearing the wrong glasses and we're missing the main point. See, see, I know too many Christians that are what I call truth Christians or obedience Christians or righteousness Christians or political Christians or activist Christians. And, and again, I don't want you guys to hear me wrong. I got no problem with all that stuff. I, I do all that stuff. I vote. I'm an activist. I go to third world countries. I love people and serve and, and I obey God and I believe in his truth. Don't hear me saying any of that. It's just that if those become the central thing, the most important thing, because God's already said they aren't, love is. That's my greatest fear for our church. Let me wrap up with an illustration that might be kind of fun for you, especially you more thinking type people. This will actually maybe drive it home for you. One of the things that I've noticed over the last few years as I've looked at the last 50 years of evangelical Christianity in America is that we are one of the most trendy group of people on planet Earth. Have you ever noticed that about Christians? You're saying, what do you mean? Well, when you look closely at Christians over kind of decades at a time, we really are a trendy, culturally engaging, culturally relevant group of people. In other words, every decade, we got kind of a different message that we scream to our American culture around us. And, and I've noticed this over the years. I've been a Christian now for 36 years. Uh, back in the 1970s, it was an eschatology trend. Some of you remember this. Uh, it began with Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. And, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but in the 1970s, this guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And get this, it sold 35 million copies, more than the purpose-driven life. It eventually would be, would be made into a movie that starred Orson Welles as the narrator. You can look all this stuff up on Google. It's history, but it's there. And the primary message that evangelicals screamed to our American culture back in the 1970s, you know, with the World War I, World War II, and then Korea, and then Vietnam, and then the gas and oil crisis, and all the things that are going on there, the Cold War, is that the end is near. And we had sort of our eschatological, our, our end times season that we screamed to our culture. But it only lasted about a decade. Because as soon as the 1980s came around, Christians got really political. And again, some of you might remember this. Who's this guy? Anybody know? Ronald Reagan. One of the greatest presidents there ever was. Ronald Reagan. And then, does anybody know who this guy is? Some of you do. Say, say his name. Do you know who he is? Oh, come on. This is Dr. Jerry Falwell. He's now with the Lord. And you're going, what in the world does Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University, Thomas Road Baptist Church, have to do with Ronald Reagan? Jerry Falwell founded an organization in the late 70s called the Moral Majority. And it became one of the things that ushered Christians into the political realm. And it really formed what we now call the Christian right. Because out of that event, Jimmy Carter had just declared he was a born-again Christian. Reagan was sensitive to Christians. You know, and then Falwell starts the moral majority. It was out of that, uh, those events that we formed organizations like the Christian Coalition, the American Family Association, Focus on the Family. And we had a whole decade, Christians did, of emphasizing political involvement. But then as the 90s came around, we got kind of tired with that. And that's when megachurch, the seeker-sensitive megachurch movement was born. Now, you don't want to miss this one because this is huge. Back in the night before the 1990s, there were only a handful of churches in America above 2,000 people. 
A quick note for you guys. There's about 320,000 Protestant churches in America today, 320,000 of them. The average church in America is 75 people. And most of them are very small churches. You drive through any small town in the Midwest, you're going to see eight churches on about four or five different corners. We are the most church nation on planet Earth. But in the 1990s, there was this birth of large, big box churches, Walmart-sized churches, Home Depot-sized churches that sprung up to the point that today, 2017, there are 1,617 churches above 2,000 people. And what should even blow you away anymore, because this became a huge trend that all of you are a part of, get this, is that on any given Sunday, 10% of American churchgoers, 50 million Americans still go to church every Sunday, 10% of them will attend a megachurch. So that means that 10% of American churchgoers attend one half of 1% of the churches in America. The megachurch movement has been huge. I, I'm not here to say what you think or to comment on what you might think about it, because we'd be shooting ourselves in some ways, but 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 people got on this megachurch bandwagon. And here's what I heard everybody say in the 90s. You remember saying this? Come to our church, we got a band. Come to our church, we got a lot of programs. Come to our church, we're really relevant. All the things, by the way, you shouldn't say to people to get them to church because they should come to church because they're thirsty for God for crying out loud. But but this trend started. And so you have an eschatology trend in the 70s and then a political trend in the 80s and then a megachurch trend. And then in the turn of the century, the younger evangelicals got very passionate and started what we call the missional trend. Maybe you've heard these words before. And this is mainly run by evangelicals in their 20s and 30s and now 40s. And their basic battle cry was, let's emphasize justice, let's emphasize cultural involvement, let's take church to them, not just ask them to come to church. And a whole movement among evangelical Christianity that, that emphasized being involved in the world started. Basically, their motto was just get out there and do something. And here's my point. All of these are good and fine trends. Some of them may be better than others, but each in their own right has added something to our Christian witness. But what I need you to see is that that's all they've really been is trends. Here's why I call us a trendy group of people. We have a strong push for a while on something, and then we're on to the next thing. Give me a head now that you at least understand that about how we've functioned over the last 50 years, because here's why this is important. About five or six years ago, give me the next picture here, we entered into a new trend. And you're saying, well, what's this? This is actually kind of endearing to me. This is my home office uh, where I live uh, outside the church in my, in my office at home. And, and most of my books are housed here at the church, but, but I have one bookshelf at home, a very classy, nice bookshelf. And you'll notice I have all my Gospel of John commentaries because we're going to be going back to John here in the next few weeks. And then I, I, I have all my books on Arizona, and these are all my Arizona uh, magazines and all of that. And then this is a picture of Chagrin Falls, my hometown, and all of that. And then over here and up here are all the books that I'm currently reading. And what's fascinating is that I've noticed that there has been just an influx of books, and here's the new trend, you're going to like this, on love. 
I, just in my bookshelf back home there, here's the books I have right now that I'm waiting to read. Love Does by Bob Goff. Love Works by Joel Manby. The Most Loving Place in Town by Ken Blanchard. Experiencing God's Love by Tom Blackaby, who is Henry Blackaby's son. One Way Love by Tully and Chavidgen. Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. Love Revolution by Gaylord Enns. Leading with Love by Alexander Strauch. A Different Kind of Happiness, a book on love by Larry Crabb. Uh, do you see the trend? About five or six years ago, evangelicals started the rally cry that we need to love more than anything else. And here's my fear, and that is that it will be just another, say the word with me, trend. You see, I've been screaming ever since I got saved because, believe it or not, I really understood this. It's not hard to understand it. I understood this years ago when I got saved, that the core of God is his love and grace, and that Christians should be the most relational, kind, loving, patient. I'm not sounding that way right now. Loving, kind, patient people on planet Earth. We should. I mean, we should be the ones leading the way in love. And I'm so thrilled that right now all these books are coming out on this and people are getting on the love bandwagon and all that stuff. I'm excited about that. But here's my fear. It's going to run the road of eschatology and politics and megachurch and missional. And in about five or ten years, we're all going to go, what's next? And you know what God says to us? There's nothing next. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep focused on what I want for you. So here's my pledge to you guys today. I got to tell you, when I first got saved 36 years ago, I have been a voice crying in the wilderness for three decades I mean, when we were going through the politics phase and the seeker-sensitive phase, even the missional phase, you can ask all my fellow pastors. I was the one saying, guys, guys, this ain't the be-all and end-all. This is not the core. Grace, love, that's the core of who God is and what we're to be about. Relationality is what's going to win a lost world. I've been saying that for 30 years and I've always been kind of the, the oddball, the outlier, the voice out there doing that. And I'm thrilled that now people are finally understanding that love really is the core. But here's what you guys need to know. When it wanes, and it will wane, when it wanes in about five or six years, what am I going to do? I'm going to be a voice crying in the wilderness again. And if you guys want to fire me, that's fine. There's 319,999 other churches <laughs> that just might be ready to hear about love. But I hope you don't fire me. Here's my last thought to you. I hope that you join me. Even if today doesn't make any sense to you, even if you're tempted to walk away today and say, golly, this is kind of a mamby-pamby message, you know, love, love, love. You know what? Just, just stop. Stop. And just ask God, could it be, God, that I'm missing something? Could it be <laughs> that I look like this? <laughs> could it be that I'm saved? I got glasses but I got the wrong set of glasses on. Just be open to that, because here's what I do know. He loves you, and so do I. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing teaching of your scripture, of the truth that we have in Jesus, that indeed we are loved beyond measure, that that love is upfront, close, and personal, that love is a presence of you in our lives, that that love is a cross that you went to for our sin. And God, I pray that as each of us does an audit maybe of our own life and experience today and this week and ask ourselves, man, are we really wearing the right glasses? That God, you would help us, some of us to repent, others of us, God, to, to just continue to stay on the road that you have for us, that narrow, wonderful road that keeps us focused on the core of your kingdom. God, as we go to a time of offering now, 
a very holy time to thank you for four years of amazing focus on your grace. I pray you'd be pleased. As the venues and campuses are with us now, I pray, God, that as they continue to stay with us during this time, may as one church we rejoice and offer ourselves anew to you. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. What we're going to do right now, as I mentioned in my prayers, is that our campuses and venues are going to stay with us for our closing time of worship. And we're going to show you a video right now that we showed you last week uh, that talks a bit about or shows you a little bit about what's gone on over the last three or four years at our church. And so this will be reviewed for some of you, but I've watched it 10 times. It's an amazing video, just a couple of minutes of showing what God has done here. And then after the video, Jeff Goble is going to come up and uh, lead us in a few words, a prayer. Then we'll go into our time of offering, and then Troy will, will wrap us up together. So God be pleased with this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Look up here on the screen. When we uh, started our Compelled by Grace journey, I shared with you all, 83% of Scottsdale does not go to church on any given weekend. The, the mission field is huge here in our city. I am so excited about Compelled by Grace because I believe in community outreach and in the world outreach. Diane and I are making the biggest financial commitment to Compelled by Grace that we've ever made. It's like a pebble into a pond. We hope that that ripple effect spreads around the world. Ultimately, people in Wales, people in America, people all around the world need Jesus. I mean, it fires me up. It gets me excited about the future and what's going to be happening at SBC. Obviously, we've done some major expansion. special ministry space. We even increased missions during this time. And it's incredible to see the life change that God is doing one life at a time through Scottsdale Bible Church. Every day I would pass this church. I started seeing buildings and like I just saw a lot of construction. One day I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I want to connect and here is where I can do it. And the minute I went into a service, I said, this is where I belong. Very unique because it was the first time I was ever in a church. And I was just greeted with open arms and a lot of love. If I didn't start going to church here, I don't know where I'd be going. Scottsdale Bible Church. You know, it was four years ago this spring that Jamie and I stood with you over a course of Sundays and talked about this adventure we were about to go on of Compelled by Grace. And now we look back over the last four years and it's remarkable what we see God having done. You know, our attendance is up nearly 30% over that time. We've seen hundreds of people come to Christ and countless lives changed. So the, the, the sacrifice that you have all engaged in, we've seen the harvest begin already, and this is just the start. 
You know, he's also allowed us to provide a, a permanent home for Phoenix Seminary. Uh, and by the way, they had a terrifically successful annual fundraiser last week, and they raised all the money they need to build out the campus down at our former chapel. And we praise God for that. Indeed. And you all helped us to help build uh, a community and Bible center in Janine, in the West Bank uh, of Palestine, uh, the West Bank of the Jordan River. You know, we shared with you uh, that uh, we had a goal of raising $100,000, and there was a matching grant provided by an organization for $100,000. And then we shared with you that uh, you all had generously given $145,000 of more than we had expected. Well, I'd love to tell you that now that number is up to over $185,000 because you continue to give. So actually what we've been able to do is go back to the organization that provided the, uh, the matching grant and we challenge them to match us, to match your giving, so that we can uh, build the center in Janine. On behalf of all of the elders and the pastoral team, I say to you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your sacrifice these last four years, for your astonishing generosity, for the thousands and thousands of homes that joined in with this, with this adventure uh, with us. As we shared last week, our original goal was $23 million, and to date, you have all given $21 million. I, yeah. I remember sitting and praying five years ago about this, and I have to tell you, it was scary to look into the face of this adventure of Compelled by Grace. And, Lord, are you really leading us to do something this big? Are you really leading us to really change our view of our community and our role in helping reach lost people? And I can't tell you what it feels like to be on the other side together, all of us, thousands of us, and to see the way he has led us together in this. You know, but I will also tell you, this is a season of preparation these last four years. God's not done with us. Um, you know, as we shared four years ago, we were just finishing our 50th anniversary celebration of Scottsdale Bible Church, and we talked about dropping the curtain on the last 50 years and opening the curtain for the next 50 years, and our fervent prayer that our second 50 years at Scottsdale Bible Church would be far more fruitful than even the first 50 years were, and we're so terribly grateful for all of the people who gave of themselves their time, their talent, and their treasure uh, to trust the Lord to build this church for 50 years. But as Jamie shared with us, we still have 87% of our neighbors who are not connected to a Christ-centered church in our community. And as you can see right now, we're a little full. So God's not done with this yet. And you'll hear more over the next year about new initiatives, new ways that we can make a bigger impact that we believe the Lord is, is leading us to do to reach more people in our community. And I'd ask you to pray for us as pastors and elders as we pray and pray and pray to discern the Lord's will to how do we continue to reach more and to make more disciples in our community and around the world. So I'm here again just to say thank you and to celebrate this uh, as we come together and close the public phase of this four years of Compelled by Grace and to tell you that um, you shine in my eyes and I know you are a fervent offering to the Lord in his eyes because of your faithfulness and your sacrifice and your generosity. And I couldn't be any more proud of this church and the way you have all responded, nor any more grateful for all of you.
So as we get ready to take this, uh, this last offering, if the ushers would come forward, let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we just come before you and we give you all the praise and all the glory because what has happened these last four years, this journey you have taken us on has been your journey. You have provided the faith. You have provided the generosity. You've provided the vision. All of this is from your hand. And Father, you've provided the souls and the, uh, that we've been able to touch. Uh, Father, make us great stewards of this vision you've given us, of these resources you've given us, the, the, the building resources, financial resources, but most importantly, Father, these dear ones that comprise Scottsdale Bible Church, the body of Christ here. Help us to be um, excellent stewards and shepherds of these dear people. Father, continue to ignite our passion for lost people in our community and what we may do to, uh, to be different in how we love and that we would take the gospel of grace and mercy and love to them in new ways. Father, please receive uh, these offerings as they're intended with, uh, with our love and our worship of you. And we give you all the praise, Lord Jesus. Amen.
is so true. Our God is faithful. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day, your weekend, and we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.